Uh, we are going to conclude our series through the Ten Commandments. We started this series some 11 weeks ago. We've been calling it Thou Shalt the Ten Commandments. And if you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We're going to look at verse 31 through 35, a sermon I'm calling the 11th Commandment. Um, as you're getting your Bibles there to John chapter 13, I, I heard a story of a pastor that was called to a new church. And he, he's called to this church. He really hasn't met all of his church members yet. So he decided to go to the church on a Saturday to try to find out exactly what kind of uh, people he was going to be pastoring. And he decided to kind of disguise himself as a homeless person. And so he had to shave in quite some time. He had to bathe in quite some time. And he put on the most tattered clothing on, so he really looked apart. And he went there on a Saturday. And he's just milling around the outside of a church, his church. And one of his deacons, who he hadn't met yet, just happened to be driving by and saw him and, and thought he might be a man that's in need. So he pulled his car over and he got out and he went up to him and began talking to him. And he started speaking to him about the love of God, for the love that God has for all people. And he, he insisted that this man come home with him and, and enjoy a, a nice meal with his family. And so he loaded his car and he took him home. And he kind of sprung this upon his wife, even though... She's a godly woman, so she took it from stride, just learned how to stretch the, the dinner into one extra. And the, the family gathered around the table, and it was the custom of family to discuss the Bible over dinner. And so mom, she wanted to ask a question, but didn't want to make it too hard and maybe embarrass their new guest. So she asked the question, she asked, how many commandments are in the Bible? And the pastor in the sky spoke up and said, eleven. All the kids kind of snickered because they knew what mom was thinking. They, they knew the answer was clearly 10. Well, at the end of dinner, the pastor, homeless person, was done. Thanked them and for all their hospitality, and he left. The next morning was Sunday. And so the family got dressed in their Sunday best, and they went to church as they always do. And when the pastor took the pulpit, the mother recognized him right away, even though now he's clean-shaved and has his suit on. And the pastor said, Open your Bibles to John chapter 13, a sermon I'm calling the 11th commandment. And with that, let's read John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. It says, and when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children. Yet a little while and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. So we have been studying the Ten Commandments, for now this is our 11th installment. And it seems a little odd that I would conclude this series on the Ten Commandments with a sermon called the Eleventh Commandment, but that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 22, you would read about the day when Jesus was asked what was the greatest of all the commandments. And if you've been going to church long enough, you know the, the answer that Jesus gave. He, he said, he said to, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He said the second is like it. 
is to love others and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he had on this little tagline, he said, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Christ is saying, he's saying, if you love God, that will manifest itself in the way that you love others. And probably there's someone in the crowd with us, maybe they're at home watching online, and they're thinking, oh, we're about to get an, a hippy-dippy message on love. We're about to get this ooly-gooly message about holding hands and singing kumbaya and all this flowery stuff that so many Christians think Christianity is. And I would greatly disagree with that. There's some that teach that that's what Jesus was talking about, but I don't think that's what he was talking about at all. See, this is what I think Jesus was talking about. He's talking about our relationship with God earlier in the, in the early on in the Ten Commandments, that if we truly love God, then we don't profane his name. And that if we truly love God, we will have no other gods than God. And that if we truly love God, we won't worship anything other than God. If we truly love God, we will see worshiping God as, as rest that is good for our souls. And so what that what motivates us to obey those commands is our love for God. And so our love for God, it then compels us in the way that we treat other people. That our love for God should prompt us to honor our mother and our father, that our love for God should propel us to be to love our spouse and never be unfaithful to our spouse, that if we love God, we are going to love our neighbors. And so that will cause us to never steal from them, for, to never lie to them, to never covet what is theirs, and certainly would cause us to have a murder. Can you see how our love for God motivates us to, to live this out in the way that we treat other people? I, I called it the horizontal commandments. The first four commandments are kind of our relationship with God. It has to do with us and God. And the, and the last six are the way that we interact with people. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Romans 13, verse 8. He said, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the, love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You know, if you were to read the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you sat down and read those, it might take you two hours, plus or minus a few minutes, depending on how fast you read. But yet, we know Jesus was with his disciples for over three years. And so very clearly, Jesus said more and did more than what's captured for us in, in the Gospels. That's exactly what the Apostle John tells us in the 20th chapter of his Gospel. But I'd like to consider this. Not only did Jesus say more and did more, but he probably said some of the same things more times. You think that's possible? I picture Jesus saying, love God and love your neighbors over and over and over again. That's probably something that, that Jesus drilled into the disciples' heads. Do you think that's possible? I think at some point Christ must have said, would you guys, for the love of me, just, just get along and love one another? Can you do that? But here's some things I want you to know about the 11th Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, to love one another is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. To all the parents in the room of multiple children, I think you're going to really appreciate this illustration here. Have you ever had your kids just going at it, and they're just like chewing each other's faces off, and you're like, I can't take it anymore. You, get over here. You, get over here. Look each other in the eyes and tell them that you love them. Anybody ever been there as parents? Yeah. yeah. Some of you had the shirt that you made them get inside, the kill on the shirt. I don't know if you had that, but 
I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Now, Jesus is not saying, hey, I really appreciate that you guys love one another. Hey, I kind of like it if you think, could you find the time to love one Hey, I'd really prefer if you guys could love one another. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He, he's using the imperative voice when he issues this command. So again, this is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. So the same voice that God says, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. Here, God is saying, you must love one another, just as I have loved you. You know, I think it's easier to see this as a command when you really read it in the context in which we're getting here in John chapter 13. Jesus says these words just as Judas Iscariot leaves the upper room. Look at verse 31 if you have your Bibles open. It says, when he had gone out. Well, who's he? He is Judas. Judas Iscariot, one of the very closest friends to Jesus Christ for over three years. Jesus has just, just washed the feet of Judas. And then Judas leaves to go meet with the Sanhedrin to sell Jesus down the river for some pocket change. Think about this. Jesus knows the cross is merely roughly nine hours from the time he said this. His time with the disciples is short. This is not time to mince words. This is it. It's time for no-nonsense orders. This is like a father that's going to go away to war. And he gathers the children together. And he, he takes his oldest son and says, hey, while I'm gone, you're the man of the house. Take care of mom. This commandment clearly had a tremendous impact on the Apostle John because he goes on to write about love more than any other New Testament writer. In John's epistle, John uses some form of the word love 51 times. That's why John becomes known as the love apostle. Church history says that at the end of John's life, when he got old and he could no longer walk, he would have some of the younger men of the church pick him up and carry him to the church. And he would just sit outside the church and, and preach a brief sermonette. And he would say, little children, love one another. And the guys that would carry him to the church, they eventually answered, they're like, why are you so hung up on this one message? Why do you keep preaching that same message day after day? Church history says because, then John says, because it's the Lord's command. Now that's the only thing we, we do is love. So the first thing we need to realize is that loving one another is a requirement of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is not optional. But here's one thing I'd like, like for you to consider. Okay? Why would we make loving us difficult? Think about it. There's some believers that are just difficult to, to get along with for no other words. At least they're hard to love for no other reason. They're, they're, they're just hard to get along with. So if you are a believer, this is a commandment to love one another. It's also a commandment to be lovable. Then another thing that we should note about this text, that Jesus says that when we obey the 11th commandment, it demonstrates our love to God to others. It brings me to my second point, point number two. Our love, our, our love for others proves our relationship to God. Look at John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, by this, all people 
will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, I think this is the reason that Jesus could say this is because God is the source of all pure and genuine love. That's exactly what the Apostle John said when he later writes his first epistle. Read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. The Lord God says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this text, John did not say God is loving, though that's that's the case, as if it's you know one of God's many divine attributes or something. No, John very clearly says God is love. In other words, it's the very essence of God. It's it's the word agape. Agape means to sacrifice, to give and expect nothing in return. That's the very nature of God. So when God rules, he rules in love. When God judges, God judges in love. Love is never absent from the very being of God. We, we know God. one of uh, God's characteristics is his holiness. Read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. It says, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, can you see how King Jesus is completely different from you and I? And since God is holy, it would seem in our minds perfectly acceptable that he would view somebody living neck deep in sin with the utmost contempt. But that's not the case. Since God is love, his holiness reaches out to sinners for salvation. His holiness causes the opposite of indifference. Oswald Chambers said this, he said, quote, God and love are synonymous. Love is not an attribute of God, it is God. Whatever God is, love is. If your conception of love does not agree with justice and judgment, purity and holiness, then your idea of love is wrong. I heard a story of the day when Charles Spurgeon was driving through the, the, the countryside, and he passed a, a a farm, and on the, the farmer's barn, there was a big weather vane, and on the arrow of the weather vane, it had the word, God is love. And the story says that Charles Spurgeon couldn't take any longer, and so he decided to turn into the farm, and he went and he hunted down the, the farmer, and he asked him, he says, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that God's love is changeable with the wind? And the farmer said, oh no. I mean, whichever way the wind blows, God is still love. Think about that. Whichever way the wind blows, God is still love. And I think it needs to be said that the way a Christian loves it is the means by which God is revealing himself to a lost and dying world. So when we love, we must love like God loves. And if we do so, really we show God off to those who don't know, know him. That brings me to my third point. Point number three. A Christian love attracts non-believers to God. Now, I think it needs to be said that a Christian's love, or the way that we're commanded to in the Bible, doesn't exactly fit into the world's definition of love. Because a non-Christian, they'll typically tell you, well, if you love somebody, then you never tell them they're wrong. 
that if you love somebody, you'll never see, say anything that hurts their feelings. But yet you read the Gospels, that's clearly not Jesus' approach at all. He said things that were offensive all the time, but yet he always loved everybody. Since that's clearly not what Jesus practiced, I think there must be an alternative definition to, to love. Grab your Bibles, turn back one page to John chapter 12, look at verse 32. Jesus says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I think Jesus is very clearly talking about the crucifixion and the ascension in that text. But on a side note, look, look at that. Who's Jesus going to draw to himself? All people. The word all in the Greek is the word pas. If you really do a Greek study on that, you know what it means? It means all. The word all in Greek means all in English. So to those that say, well, God only calls a select few, that just does not line up with Scripture. Jesus calls all people to himself. And since Jesus was lifted up for all people on, on the cross, then I think we need to, to show how thankful we are that he died for our sins in the way that we love others. Because if we do that, then we see that, that that promise fulfilled as Jesus draws all people to him. Years ago, before he passed away, there was a man by the name of Chuck Colson. And he was being interviewed on this newfound Christian faith. If you're not old enough to know who Chuck Colson is, there was a time back when he was, his nickname was the Hatchet Man for uh, President then Richard Nixon. Chuck Colson gained notoriety in the height of the Watergate scandal. He was being named as one of the Watergate Seven. And he pled guilty to obstruction of justice and did time for his crime. While he was in, in prison, a, a news reporter was interviewing him, and she, and she asked, he said, tell me something that proves that Christianity is real. And in his answer, he told about an experience that happened while he was serving time in prison for the Watergate scandal. This is what he said. He said, quote, several Christian men stunned me with the quality of love that I have never known before. I'll never forget that Al Pewey called to say, Chuck, because of your family problems, I'm going to ask the president if I can go, if you can go home while I serve the rest of your prison term. I gasped in disbelief. At, at the time, this man was the sixth-ranking Republican in the House, one, one of the most respected public figures in Washington. Yet he was willing to jeopardize it all out of his love for me. The, the fact that a believer would lay down his life for another was a powerful witness to me that Jesus was for real. And as Chuck Colson shared that story with the news reporter, she began to wave him off and said, no, no. As, as tears mixed with mascara was streaming down her face, she later confessed that it was Al Pewey's witness to lovingly give himself on Chuck Colson's behalf. It deeply touched her to where she went back to the church that she left long ago. You see, when we love like Jesus loved, when we're willing to lay down our life for, for our friends, we draw people to Jesus. There was a story of a young boy back during D.L. Moody's uh, preaching campaigns. D.L. Moody was a very famous preacher in the city of Chicago. That this young boy would travel all the way across the, the city of Chicago every Sunday just to hear D.L. Moody preach. And, and one day somebody stopped this boy and said, 
Why do you travel so far to go to that church? Don't you know you're passing dozens of churches along the way? The boy said, they don't want to love a fellow like me in that church. See, Christ's like love attracts people to God. Well, we're commanded to obey this 11th commandment, then I think we need to understand exactly what Jesus' love is like. Pick it up, read John chapter 13, verse 34 again. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Did you hear that? Jesus tells us what this love looks like. Just as I have loved you. So this morning, I want to I really center this message on three aspects or three qualities of Jesus' love. Because if we don't know what this is, I think there's zero chance of us actually coming through with this. Here's the three qualities of the love of God that we need to be aware of. Number one, that Jesus' love was characterized by actions and not feelings. And I think, I don't know about you, but this is good for a guy like me to know. Because I don't get all warm and fuzzy. I, I can't just turn on emotions at the flip of the switch like some people can. Because often we think of love as emotions. We think of feelings. But let's just be honest here. These the guys in the room will say, well, that's not something I'm really good at. Now, if you need me to do something, then I'm your guy, right? If, if you need to, if you need something done, ask me on it. But again, if you ask me to feel a certain way, if you ask me to empathize about something, especially something I'm not terribly passionate about, then I'm going to have a tough time. But action, I'm your guy, right? I heard a story about a seminary professor that spent a lot of time of talking and lecturing his students on the importance of loving one another. One day, this seminary professor was having a new sidewalk poured outside of his house, and there was this small neighborhood boy that was playing outside his house, and he didn't realize that the, the, the cement for the concrete was wet, and he rode his bike right through the concrete. And the seminary professor realized what he did, and he ran down, he grabbed the boy, and he really rigged him out for destroying the concrete. Sometime later, one of his students found out about this, and he shared it with the rest of the students. And then the next class, they said, hey, you're always telling us about loving one another, but look at the way you treated that little boy. The professor replied, it's like this. I love him in the abstract. I don't love him in the concrete. <laughs> That's us, right? That's us. We talk about it. Now to actually do it, yeah, I'm not so sure about it. Well, I think we understand how that professor felt. It's hard to feel love for everybody, right? But fortunately for us, this commandment has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with action. Jesus is talking here about a love that's controlled by your head, not necessarily the heart. He's talking about a love that expresses itself in doing good for other people. Expecting nothing in return. So Jesus commands, he commands a love of action. And we see this in the action or the quality of God's love for us. Let's look at some examples in scripture. Here's probably the most famous one in all the scripture. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. You see the verb there? He gave. What, well, what did he give? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can you see how the love of God is a love of action? Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ 
died for us. The love of God compelled his son to go to the cross to die for sinners. That Jesus' love is characterized by actions and not necessarily feelings. You know what that means for us? We're commanded to do the same. We're, we are commanded by God to act in love towards all people. So for anyone that would say, well, I don't really think God loves me, well, you don't understand what God has done for you. God has proven his love as he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for sinful people. And now if you believe that, if you've accepted that, we are commanded to go do the same. Here's the second quality of, uh, of God's love. Jesus' love is an inclusive love and not selective. You see, Jesus acts in love towards everybody. He doesn't pick and choose who he's going to love, like John 3, 16, for God so loved, you could say, in the entire world. We'll read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We spoke about it earlier, but that word all is the word all. It means everybody. There's a man by the name of William Barclay. He tells a story of a group of soldiers in World War II. During the battle, they lost one of their friends, and they wanted to give their fallen friend a proper burial. And so they found a, uh, a church in the, in the countryside, and this church had a graveyard that was nearby the church, the white picket fence around it. So they went, they found a priest, and they asked if they could bury their friend in the church graveyard. The priest asked, well, well was he Catholic? His friend said, no, he, he wasn't Catholic, he was Protestant. He said, I'm sorry, our, our graveyard is reserved for, for those of the Catholic church. He said, but you know what, you can bury your friend outside the fence, and I'll still check and make sure that the grave is, is taken care of. They said, oh, thank you, Father, and the soldiers, they, they buried their fallen friend. Their fallen friend. It was at, right at the conclusion of the war, and they're about to be shipped home. They decided they wanted to go visit their friend one last time before they left to go home. And they remembered the church, and they remembered the, the white picket fence, and they went to where they remembered the, the, the burial being taken place, and they couldn't find it. And they searched, and they searched, and finally they went to the priest, and they said, hey, we can't find our, our friend's grave. Can you help us? And the priest said, well, after you left, it just didn't seem right that he was buried outside the, the, the fence. So the soldier said, so you moved the grave? The priest said, no, I moved the fence. That's what God has done for us. You see, none of us deserve to be placed inside of God's fence. But because of God's love, he, he acts towards us. He reaches for us in salvation. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that God does that because I know I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve it. In fact, I deserve the opposite. I deserve the very wrath of God. God doesn't give that to me. Instead, he gives me grace. You know, we say things like, well, love is blind. That's not true with God. God's love is an eyes-wide-open kind of love because the love of God acts despite what he knows. And God is omniscient. God knows everything. God knows every single thing about you and every single thing about me. And in fact, he knows us better than we know us. He knows us. He knows
knows exactly how evil we are. And yet he still reaches out to us, despite of how sinful we are. That, that this love that God has for, for, it's for all people. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote when in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. It says, for God shows no partiality. God does not show favoritism. He loves us all, despite of how sinful we are. There was a man by the name of Martin Neumuller. He was a pastor in Germany during World War II. He was so very outspoken against Hitler and the Nazi regime that that actually placed him inside a Nazi death camp. Eventually, the Nazis hung him. Before he was hanged, he wrote this. He said, quote, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. Think about that. God is not the enemy of our enemies. Those words make me think of what Jesus' sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus calls believers to love all people. There's no one that stands outside the circle of God's love. And most of us in our mind, we have a very difficult time drawing a circle as big as God can. But what that causes us to do is you know, so, so often we're not exactly sure that God loves the drunkards. We're not so sure that God loves the, the drug addicts or the fornicators. We're not so sure that God loves the homosexuals or the thieves or the people that abuse other, others. But I want you to consider this. Right now, as I'm preaching this message, there is somebody in this world somewhere dying of AIDS. who contracted that disease through, through very immoral behavior that is desperately loved by God. Consider that? There's some believe that's not true, but it is. So imagine you, you, you imagine yourself in just how all-encompassing God's love is. So draw draw that circle again. Imagine yourself standing in that circle and then, then say this: say, there's no one in this entire world that God loves more than he does me. And that's absolutely true. But before you finish that sentence, before you get all self-righteous, then say, and there's no one in this world that God loves less than he does me. God loves all people. Even the people that we sometimes feel justified to hate. There was an author by the name of Philip Yancey. He, he wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And he told a story of a man by the name of Will Campbell, who was a minister in Mississippi in the 1960s. And he was very involved in the civil rights movement. And Yancey stands against the evils of race, racism and ended up costing his job at Old Miss. Caused many of his friends to turn against him, but yet he was determined to end legalized segregation. And so what he did, he moved into the thick of the battle, and he was he was um, convincing these these uh, idealistic northerners that were that were moving south to help out in the civil rights crusade. And he found himself being criticized by Christians who refused to let people of other races 
into their church and, and, and resisted any tampering that favored whites. Can you imagine there was a day and time in this country where people of different skin colors were not allowed to worship together? That's, that's, that's beyond my thinking, but it's absolutely true. Well, well there's one day this renegade news reporter was, was interviewing and asked the question of, of the ballots. He says, he, he says, he actually viewed all Christians as the enemy. And he understands uh, Will's stubbornness uh, and his, his commitment to the Christian faith. And he said this, he asked the question, he said, in 10 words or less, what is the Christian message? And Campbell thought for a moment, he said, we're all scum. But yet God loves us anyway. Perhaps the darkest day of Campbell's life was the day when an Alabama deputy sheriff named Thomas Coleman gunned down a young man by the name of Jonathan Daniels, who had come south to assist Campbell in his work. Uh, it, what happened, that, that, then that same reporter found Campbell and asked, he says, does your definition still work? Do you still believe that God loves us all? He asked the question, who does God love more? The murderer, Thomas Coleman, or the innocent victim, Jonathan Daniels? Campbell said, when he posed that question, all of a sudden, everything became perfectly clear. He said, in my mind, I, I agreed with the notion that God would, you know, how, how could God love a man that would walk up with a shotgun and fire a blast into another man's chest, tearing his heart and his lungs and his bowels apart? He says, the fact that God could love a man like that was more than I could take. But nonetheless, it's true. Because if God can't man love a man like that, then there is no gospel. Then there is no good news. With that, Will Campbell received a, that night a new insight, insight on grace. The free gift of God, it extends not only to the undeserving, because the truth is we're all undeserving. God's grace goes to the, those of the Ku Klux Klan as well as the civil rights marchers. It extends to murderers like Thomas Coleman and also to victims like Jonathan Daniels. Nancy said that this message lodged inside of Will Campbell so deeply that he underwent what he called an earthquake of grace. And he ironically went on to what they called the apostle to the rednecks. He ended up buying a farm in Tennessee and, and spent time among Klansmen and among racists, as well as racial minorities and white liberals. He, a lot of people he decided that were volunteering to help minorities understand God's love. He knew in doing this, there was no one ministering to the Thomas Pullmans of the world. So he's the one that did it. You see, Jesus' love is all-inclusive, and there's no one that Jesus doesn't love. Brings me to the third quality of God's love. Jesus' love is sacrificial. God acts in love towards everybody, even when it's costly for him to do so. Read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Earlier, I spoke about Chuck Colson. He wrote several books. He wrote a book that was titled The Body. And Colson told the story, true story, of Father Maximilian Colby, who was a Polish monk that was in prison in Auschwitz during World War II. Father Colby was subject to years of torturous manual labor, but yet, even though he was 
stopped in that camp, he was always a source of godly love to the prisoners as well as the Nazi soldiers. One hot July night, a couple years after his imprisonment, the, the camp air, air was suddenly filled with barking dogs and screaming soldiers and the roar of motorcycles. There was a man that escaped from Barracks 14. Barracks 14 happened to be the same barracks that Father Colby was a part of. The next morning, there was particular tension in the air as, as they lined up all the phantom thin prisoners and they called for the morning roll call in the center square because the escapee had not been found. That meant certain death for some of the men who remained. All the prisoners were excused that morning to go back to their barracks except those in Barracks 14. Though the men of Barracks 14 were ordered to stand in attention all day long in the hot summer sun, without food, without water, and some of them fainted and were drugged away. Some of them swayed in place only to be hit by the soldiers' guns and, and to crumple down, but somehow Father Colby, by a miracle, stayed on his feet, trying to stay as stiff as he could. By the evening roll call, the commandant was ready to give uh, the prisoners their sentence. He screamed out, The prisoner has not been found! Ten of you will die in this place. If this ever happens again, 20 will die in the starvation bunker. It was said the starvation bunker was the worst way to die. It said it would be better to perish in the gas chamber than to be stuck in a starvation bunker. Because after a day or two in a starvation bunker, the men didn't even look like human beings. Their appearance and their behavior went on to even scare the Nazi guard because, because of the heat and the absence of food and, and water, their throats would turn paper thin and it seemed like their brains were on fire and their intestines turned to like shriveled up worms. And so the commandant had all the prisoners lined up and he was beginning to inspect their mouths. He was actually looking at their, at their teeth like somebody judges a horse. And that's how he was choosing which ten would die. And he chose the last of the ten. And the last man groaned. He said, my poor wife, my poor children. What will they do? And then all of a sudden there was a commotion among the ranks. And there was a prisoner that broke out of the ranks and was addressing the commandant. Because you don't address the commandant as a soldier. That meant certain death. And so the Nazi pulled his pistol and put it to the, the prisoner's head. It was Father Colby. And the commandant yelled, what does this Polish pig have to do with me? And the rest of the prisoners look and gasp. It was the same man that shared their last piece of bread. He was covering the dying. He always nourished their souls. And this failed priest, he spoke very calmly. He said, I'd like to take the place of one of the prisoners who was sentenced to die in the starvation line. The commander asked, why would you do that? And Colby replied, I'm an old man, sir. I, there's nothing good left for me. My life will serve no purpose. The commandant asked, well, in whose place would you like to take? Well, he said that last man spoke about his wife and kids. And then he took his place. And that one man was allowed to go back into the barracks. As, as they passed, they said his face wasn't even that of gratitude yet. It was still just shocked. But yet, Father Colby was bending his small will to the very will of God. It says, the story says that as hours passed away, the camp became aware that something extraordinary was happening in the starvation bunkers because previously, though during the last days, the men would claw and scratch each other and attack each other and howl and scream, 
But something different was happening this time. Now, out of the starvation bunkers, they could hear the faint sound of singing. The, the, this time, the prisoners had a shepherd that was gently leading them to the valley of the shadow of death, it was pointing them to the great shepherd. And that might be the reason that Father Maximilian Kolbe was the last about it. You know, if you go to Auschwitz today, you can find a perpetual flame burning. And that flame is a remembrance to, that we'll never forget what happened there, and hopefully never repeat the atrocities of the Nazis. But in his book, Chuck Colson said it's so much more than that. This flame celebrates the fact that men and women who are dirty with the greatest horrors can still celebrate and demonstrate the greatest of love. It's not a monument to Father Maximilian Kolbe alone, the hero he was, but it points to the ultimate, the ultimate God-man that came and laid down his life for others. The master that came to not to serve, to, to be served, but to serve. It's for the only king in history that died on behalf of his subjects. If we were to walk away from the 11th commandment, there's going to be two things I hope you leave here today knowing. First of all, I hope you realize just how desperate that our community and our country and our world needs to know the love of Jesus Christ. Because let's face it, hate comes so easy today. Just a few weeks ago, some madman took his SUV and drove it to a Christmas parade, killing five. Just a few short weeks ago, some teenager walks into his own school and gunned down four of his classmates. Our culture needs the impact of Christians that will lay down their life, that will act in love towards all people. Even when it's expensively costly to do so. The second thing I hope you realize is that we can't do this on our own power. We can't obey the 11th commandment on our own strength. It has to come from God. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When he says, God's law is not written with me, but in the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human heart. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we have sufficient in ourselves or power, I think that's what Paul was saying, to claim anything is coming for us, but our sufficiency comes from God. Can you imagine the impact that we, Cross Point Baptist Church, might have on our community if we're willing to love like Jesus loved? That we, we would share this eternity-changing message with every single man, woman, and child in our community to tell them that God has come for them. His name is Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross, crucified, and died. Why? Because we're sinners. That we don't get to heaven by being good people because we're not good people. God had to come and die. His name is Jesus and the Bible says, whoever calls the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you never called on Jesus to save you, I'd ask you to do that right now. You see, you must recognize yourself as a sinner and turn to away from sin and turn to God in faith. The Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, so that no one can boast. And then the Bible has a beautiful promise, says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you ever called on Jesus, I would ask you to do that right now. To say something like, Dear God, 
I'm a sinner. And yet you still love me. And you died in my place. Lord, I give you my life. Save me of my sins. And I pray this in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen.